Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with the Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The topic today on the resilient surgeon is stress, but not the big stressors that can derail us like a job change, moving, significant illness or relationship problems. Today, we're talking about the little stressors that pepper our minds and our emotions nearly every day at work, at home, on the road, and in stores. In fact, nearly everywhere we go, we will likely encounter these micro-stresses, a term coined by our guest today, Rob Cross. Many times these micro-stresses are inconsequential, but in our increasingly complicated and fast-paced always-on world, they can mount up over time. And this unrecognized buildup can dramatically erode our physical health, our mental health, and our relationships at home and at work. And believe it or not, our sense of purpose in life. And as our guest Rob Cross points out, the pernicious micro-stresses that can slowly topple our lives come from the people closest to us our colleagues at work, and our loved ones at home. And when you add in the fact that we live in such a hyper-connected environment 24-7 that puts us on call around the clock, it can all add up to, as Rob says, an invisible and relentless slow downward spiral that we may not even recognize until you realize that you're no longer okay or worse. Rob is the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College and the author of the recently released book, The Micro-Stress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems and What to Do About It. Rob has spent the last 20 years studying and applying social network analysis of organizations and the collaborative practices of high performers, looking for ideas and actionable insights that are critical to the bottom line results of the over 300 leading businesses, governments, and nonprofits with whom he has worked. Rob is a prolific author, both academically and in other publications, including Harvard Business Review, the Sloan MIT Management Review, Business Week, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Time Magazine, and Fast Company. Well, Rob, thank you so much for being our guest today on The Resilient Surgeon. It's a huge honor for all of us. And again, I appreciate so much your time and the work oh, that I'm you've done around this. So appreciative that you're interested. What, what you all do is so critical and under so much stress. To begin with, I can see these ideas are relevant for us. So I, I appreciate the chance to, to be able to share yeah, some ex extraordinarily relevant. Well, what I think would be great is if you could give us briefly an overview of your academic trajectory, but particularly... How did you land on this thing of microstresses? Because from the book, it's kind of a fortuitous finding, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it very much was. Yeah. Actually, yeah. that probably explains most of the bigger wins in my careers. <laughs> well, it's it's what, the way my life has unfolded, too, in my careers, yeah. too, yes. <laughs> Just have to be your eyes open and see it and, and lean you into bet. it. You but bet, the, um, yeah. What we were doing is, this is a book I never wanted to write, to be honest with you. I, I you know, was five or six years ago, pre-pandemic, and we were um, sharing results from the consortia to my group. There are about 300 companies in the room. We're actually holding the meeting at the Broad Institute. 
Institute downtown in Cambridge. And I was going through some of the work we'd been doing on high performers and understanding how they were collaborating using all the analytics that we collect. And uh, somebody in the back of the room raised their hand and said, well, what about, you know, not just performance, but people that are happy or sustainable in their lives uh, and how they're doing things. And I remember so vividly at the time, I just kind of groaned because you know, I, I always follow the direction of the members and in terms of what we're, we're researching. And at that point in time, everybody only cared about innovation, right? You, you know, pre-pandemic, it was all about growth mm-hmm. and everything mm-hmm. else. And so I had my whole head of steam, you know, going in that direction. And, and then I, you know, started leaning into this work and did some interviews and, you know, did hundreds of them ultimately where you're deep into very successful people's lives uh, today. And you see the, the cracks and the struggles that people are having because we're so hyper connected uh, in different ways that it really got into my soul, you know, in in different ways. And then in parallel, you start doing all the research on public health and you find out that kind of lack of these quality connections, you know, has a massive impact on our health. You know, the mortality rates equivalent to 15 cigarettes a day. I mean, all sorts of things show up. Uh, And then the negative, you know, impact is is very significant. So um, I really, what we were doing was we were focused on what's the role of relationships and people's well-being, right? And so we actually okay. started down this path looking at what are the legitimate ways that connections in our lives have a positive impact on our well-being. And it related to how we take care of ourselves physically, how we grow in and out of our profession, uh, how we experience purpose in our life, and how we experience resilience, you know, and looking at the role of relationships. And I was in my very first interview, and you know, uh, this and just I want to just just be clear: you were you were doing a series of interviews of high performers, right? Right. right. As a means to understand this issue better. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. we had done. Yeah. Uh, I use an analytic approach called organizational network analysis. So that's an approach to map collaborations and patterns of interactivity mm-hmm. and what people are getting from each other. And so we've done a, a good bit amount of that work quantitatively. Right to see, you know, what are the statistical uh, ways that these relationships are having impact. Uh, but I was again focused positively. Right, I was focused on right. what are the connections you need to lean into, and then that led into these interviews. And um, the very first interview, you know, this this lovely uh, woman, life science executive in London, very successful, and British accent. I won't try to emulate here, but she's. Uh, I said, you know, tell me about a time in your life. You're becoming more physically healthy. What was the role of relationships in that? And she just laughed and she said, well, you know, I was the person that dodged gym in high school every chance I could, right? I wanted nothing to do with physical activity. And that kind of worked for me up until my mid to late thirties where life and profession had really, you know, accelerated. My doctor said, you need to do something about this, right? And so her solution was she started walking around a, a park outside of her flat in London and she would do it the same time every day. So she started walking with the same people, you know, bumped into people and they mm-hmm. struck up conversations and, and that led to longer walks. And then it led to a charity walk and a charity run with this group. And you flash forward 10 years, and this was an individual that was um, planning vacations with her spouse and some of those people where they would, you know, run a marathon first and then go on vacation. And this was the, you know, the self-described couch potato, right? The, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Ice yeah. Was doing much. And so this interview, you know, what she was telling me was that the identity of being a runner was really critical to pushing back on those last five or 10 emails, right? And so, you know mm-hmm. what, the scope of it, I'm going to put boundaries up and live my life. But the real key to it was that that activity was situated in a group of very different people 
So suddenly she wasn't hanging out with just surgeons, right? Or just healthcare people or just life sciences people that all saw the world through their same dramatic lens and everything else. Right. She was spending time with an auto mechanic, right? And a software developer and a male person. And the perspective that that dimensionality created in life was, was really critical, right? To, it's such to a rich her. environment uh, yeah. comparatively. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Because she would see them at their worst. They saw her at her worst. Mm -hmm. And and so this interview, very first one, I was going 100 miles a minute, we're laughing, you know, joking, and, and I stopped it about halfway through and I said, you know, what in the world got you in trouble, right? I, I look at you and you're smart, you're funny, you're clearly, you know, successful on so many dimensions. How did you get stuck, right, to a point that your physical health had deteriorated to? And, and she just stopped. And this interview that was going 100 miles a minute, went down to zero. She's just looking at me. And she finally said, just life, I guess, you know, or some version of that. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that got really interesting to me because in that moment, the next 45 minutes, and then hundreds of interviews after, what we really discovered was, it, it, you know, people have the big things going on in their life, the health scares or the deaths or troubles, you know, like that. But that wasn't what was killing her and the several hundred people I interviewed. What was, what was killing her was this accumulation of the small these small moments that we just think, you know, we, we successful people just get over, you don't even think about it. Right. Um, and it was, it was literally choking the life uh, out of her in different ways. And so, so that was how we got into it, you know, very kind of stumbled into it. Um, but as we progressed and I really focused in on it, it really touched my soul. You know, you do hundreds of yeah. interviews with people yeah. like this and you start to see the pressures both personally and professionally, um, and you can't help but really internalize it and say this is you know something that's that's pretty important for us all to be able to address. Yeah, and I was really struck by uh, your writing in the book about how during the interviews uh, several of the people would become tearful. Right. Yeah, it was amazing to me because we you know I wasn't looking for that. I mean, the trajectory of the interviews for the audience here was these are all very successful people, just like you know people listening to this podcast and. Every single one started off, life was rainbows and lollipops. You know, life yeah, is yeah. great. <laughs> Got all this good kids, stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. Kids are where yeah. I need to be, you know, all the veneer, you know, that we put up. Yeah. And it was only that progression, you know, down to, uh, to your point, you know, in some cases, uh, people were choking up or just very visibly flustered, but they're yeah. trying to keep yeah. up with it all. Um, so it got, like you say, very, very personal. <laughs> Yeah, a colleague of mine, I think, refers to that as the mask, you know, the, the yeah. veneer, you know, that we, yeah. we all carry around. Well, so that led you to the concept of micro stresses. I, I'm making a, a bit of a leap there, but I, that's how I understand it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to distinguish, you know, kind of micro stresses from macro stresses. Uh, yeah. You know, where do the micro stresses come from and yeah. what's the difference between the two? Yeah, great, great questions. And so I'll, I'll unpack and you keep keep probing me um, yep. for the um, the idea that we were seeing is, again, it wasn't necessarily the big things that was a problem. It was the accumulation of the small. And so that may take the form of being in a meeting and sensing misalignment with a colleague and knowing you're going to have to solve this, but you don't quite know how. So it goes in the back of your mind. Right. And you're just kind of stewing on it a little bit. And then the next interaction you see, maybe it's a, a nurse that's not handling a patient in the way that you want. And, you know, you're trying to figure out how to uh, do something about that with uh, causing anxiety or people quitting or, you know, getting upset with me. And maybe I'm getting tense just even bringing up these examples, yeah, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Seriously, I mean, it's just you, you do all these yeah. interviews and you, you start to realize 
how much of it's there, right? And, and you know, yeah. maybe the next interaction is a text from a child, right? Where you can't tell right. if they're in trouble or they're okay. And, and usually what it is, is they're just venting for five seconds. You worry about it for three hours, right? Until you, right. you see right. all of these things are kind of back of the mind. They're not, you know, fight or flight stuff. Um, and, and that was probably the biggest difference neurologically, right? I mean, these were not things that, that you know, created that fight or flight response, cortisol, you know, all the things that we start to recognize it as a threat. Mm -hmm. These were all things that just normal people get over, right? And, mm -hmm. and our, our minds don't tend quote, to register. Quote, quote get over. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the story, right, that we, right. we tell ourselves. Um, and, and, you know, what we know from, from some of the research, my co-author particularly leaned into the neuroscience side of it is our, our brains don't really register it, right. As a problem, but our bodies absorb the stress in the same kind of way. And it has impacts, uh, you know, cardiovascularly, uh, even metabolically, we found some studies that were showing that, uh, if you eat the same meal, right, the same caloric intake in a meal, you know, in one instance, you've not been under this form of social stress. In the second instance, you have been under this form of social stress within two hours. Uh, in the second instance, your body adds 104 calories to the that meal, right? That, that uh -huh, she in this uh -huh. case was looking at. And so that's 11 pounds a year if you extrapolate yeah. it out, you yeah. know, in, di yeah. in different ways. Um, and so that that was, you know, the the basis of it, right? It's not the big stress that still exists. It's these small moments. And the really important factor to it to us as well is these are all coming at us through relationships in our lives, you know. And so if I have through to be people frustrated, in our lives, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's different than um, distant stress, you know, where we may look at social justice issues or the war in the Ukraine or things like that. That all matters, but it's distant, right? These things are coming at us through people in our lives. And if we happen to be frustrated with somebody, it's going to spike us even more, right? Because of that relationship or in a lot of it, happens to come through us to uh, add us through people we love and care about you know we're concerned about an aging parent a, a child's trajectory in life a friend that may be in trouble all those are not you know toxic stress but it still creates stress for us in different ways exactly yeah just as yeah. um just as important so so that's you know kind of the the basis of it and what we were seeing is with the accumulation of the small we feel like we're in a sea of this stuff and so what we really had to do is help hone in on where is it coming from? What does it look like? How do you make it tractable uh, to be able to, to do something about it? Yeah, yeah. So again, just to emphasize these micro stresses come from the people closest to us in our lives, our colleagues, our friends, our family, right? Right. right. Yeah. And in fact, we, we put an app up, you know, on the Apple store uh, where people can go through these ideas quickly. And, and it's called the micro stress effect app. It's free. Everybody can download it and use it quickly to play with these ideas. But that is the single biggest micro stressor pulled. I just pulled the data this morning and was looking at it as uh, draining interactions with family and friends, right? And, and people's lives. So it's not all toxic connections it's it's very heavily you know associated with people we love and, and care about people care about and concern yeah. and anxiety and things like that 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 get generated yeah. yeah yeah i guess the toxic people are the really challenging people although they can certainly influence you at work in a very negative way but they you, you can have a certain degree of separation to some extent potentially right well you you talk about you're, you're, I'm sorry. I just yeah. had to turn that on airplane mode. <laughs> you know, yeah, speaking yeah. of a micro stress, that was my daughter. The story of your daughter in the book too. <laughs> right, right. Oh boy, could I identify <laughs> with that? 
<laughs> I mean, the funny thing is, you know, when I'm on stage and I'm presenting these ideas, I actually will do two slides and I'll say, I want to introduce you to this young woman that is the source of purpose in my life. And I show a picture yeah. of Rachel and, yes. and I tell, you know, a story about her. And, and she has a huge inspirational effect on me and how to live my life, how to, you know, what's important and everything else. And then I'll say, now, let me introduce you to my biggest micro stressor. And I'll pull on the next slide. And it's Rachel. Again. Yes, perfect. <laughs> you know, yeah. Because it's, you know, yeah. all the small moments where you're worried about yeah. the future or yeah. you're getting surges yeah. and responsibility. So the timeliness of that was fantastic. <laughs> no, it was just sensational. Yeah. And boy, can I identify with that with six children? I mean, my Lord, you know, this, this, it's, it's yeah. constant. You're right. It's the closest people to us, the greatest inspiration, yet the source of enormous uh, stress. Right. Right. Well, so, you know, you describe a, a critical inflection point and the cumulative impact. And I love the metaphor you made of the 11th kid jumping on the, uh, you know, you got 10 kids jumping on a bed frame mm. and the 11th one hops on and the bed frame snaps. Yeah. What does that mean here in yeah. terms of uh, micro stresses? Yeah, I mean, and we would, we, you know, we're talking to a lot of people in uh, neuroscience basically around this, and they would describe it that way, or they would describe it as kind of the, the wind eroding a mountain, you know, over time, and mm -hmm. it just kind of wears us down that, that, you know, would happen neurologically. For me, what I got interested in as I went through this is almost every single person in my interviews as we went, these are all, again, conventionally very successful, smart people, funny, charismatic. I mean, High performers. Yeah. 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 And they all ended up describing periods of their lives. Sometimes it was just a couple of months in the lucky cases, but most times it was three, five, eight years where they were just going through and reacting to the system of demands around them. Right. And they woke up one day and realized I am nowhere near where I wanted to be in life or who I wanted to be. And I've given up, you know, too much. And and it was almost always a really stark wake up moment, like my life science executive. Right. For her, it was the mm -hmm. doctor mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. other people that may be pulling into the garage and a flight's canceled and you get home and you realize suddenly I have no friends, no family to engage. You know, I've, I've let that erode in different ways. Um, so I saw that idea kind of happen in, in, you know, kind of the short moments, like neurologically, right? But right. then also these kind of longer moments where so many people just had this stark wake up going, holy cow, I've not been living intentionally. I've just kind of fallen into everybody else's intentionally, expectations. Intentionally, intentionally. Yeah. I want to underline that word. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And well, and I think it's important, you know, that as I'm going through this, what I'm finding is we, we have, as a human beings, we have never had more ability to shape what we do and who we do it with. Than I agree. But we give it up uh, constantly. We just fall into everybody else's expectations. And that not, is not just professionally. It's also, you know, how do I need to show up as a parent? What do I need to right. provide for my kids? All these other things that kind of create these pressures on us that, um, uh, you know, really created that snapping moment, right? For, for people yeah. in different ways. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, I think there's an important message here. I recall starting out a, as a junior, a new faculty member at the University of Minnesota. And, you know, it's a thrilling time. And I, I suspect for anybody starting out a new career, you graduate from college, whatever, you're in business or whatever, and the excitement and the thrill and the, uh, you know, the accumulation of uh, skills and abilities, you can find yourself very enthusiastically embracing so much. Right. Until that slow downward spiral starts, do you feel right. that's inaccurate? Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, yeah. we would track people's discussions in these interviews. We would look over time as well, you know, and right. you would see this kind of very 
step function process where people joined a profession and they got, you know, distinguishing themselves in that profession and especially in what you all do, right? And the high purpose oriented professions in many ways, you know, and, and, and kind of surprisingly, they're just as bad as Wall Street. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. in Wall Street, you know, the intensity, people would say there's no purpose here. It's all about money. And they'd be pretty blunt <laughs> about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but their lives would get absorbed in it. What was interesting with all the physicians is there is a purpose to it, right? And you get absorbed in either your clinical work or if you happen to be in a research hospital, the research that you're doing and the nobility of that and it becomes all consuming. And I would hear it over and over again, right? That, that people would lose the dimensionality in their lives because of that. And what I can see in this work is the happier people, those people that didn't go down that negative spiral in the interviews, they almost universally have two or three groups outside of their profession and direct family that they're an authentic part of, right? They have more multidimensional lives and it just tends to keep uh, the stress and perspective, it keeps us making better decisions uh, over time. So it's interesting because it, it happens not just in medicine, but a couple of other kinds of work that are highly purpose-fueled that you can fall into that unidimensionality pretty quickly and then you know run into problems later on. Well, we may come back to this, but you really you, there's a lot to unpack there, but you talked about multi-dimensionality, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to, to one's life and, and not becoming too narrowly absorbed in something and full on as, and then, but you're talking about dimensionality with other people, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll give you an example from one of the interviews I actually happened to be a, a, a neurosurgeon, right? At one of the most respected yeah. hospitals in the world. I'm not going to mention the name of it, but, you know, super successful individual again. And I had, uh, we'd done a couple of interviews and then I'd run a program with that hospital as well. And so I'd had a few interactions with him, but he was brilliant, right? And, and austere and just all the things right? that somebody had, mm-hmm. that's kind of managing a practice and the cutting edge of the research, you know what I mean? At that level yep. is. And so it was really funny. I uh, hadn't heard from him four or five months. And I got this email out of the blue with the subject line said, Rob, I've joined a rock band. <laughs> and I opened he, you know, just describing to me in an email that he, when we discussed things, he said, you know, I've allowed everything to evolve into direct family. So not even extended family, just direct family and my profession. And I need needed other things. So he had played guitar in high school. And he ended up going into a music store to just say, okay, I can control this. I can bring music into my life. And it may not be with other people, but at least it's something else. And as he was walking out the door, he passed by a flyer that said, we're looking for a guitar player, you know, and and what we lack in quality, we make up for in volume or something like that. And and so he actually joined this group. And what he was writing me, telling me, this was a couple of months into just playing with them, is he said, I'm having the time of my life. You know, I'm hanging out with 20-year-olds. They're never going to be my best friends, right? They're never going to be, you know, presumably that's what no. a lot of the books yeah. are saying is we need one or two best friends, right, in our lives. And what he was saying is this gives me um, an escape, right? I'm, I'm just, I'm removed from the pressures and, and that helps me recharge. But most importantly is I'm spending time with this group of people that see life so completely differently than a bunch yeah. of neurosurgeons. Yeah that yeah. um, I'm just thinking about things differently. And it's had a quantifiable impact on my resilience, right? And yeah, that is resilience. Um, his ability to navigate his days, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, when you start looking at it that way, 
and saying, what are the interactions that are going to help either, you know, give me a sense of purpose and what I'm up to, or, you know, create resilience. Um, we found a lot of different ways you can get it right. It doesn't have to be, yeah. but that, that the principle there, not so much go join a rock band, <laughs> the principle that right. I find really successful is people, if they've fallen out of these groups, which most people have, you know, by the time they hit mid to late thirties, especially coming out of COVID, um, one of the strategies is to reach back to a passion from the past and use that to slingshot you. You know what I mean? Into Got a it. new dimension yeah, yeah. of life. And yeah. um, that's been super successful for a, a lot of people that we spoke with. Yeah. On a sort of a different level, I mean, I, I've run a group of surgeons in, in the Twin Cities for about five years now, and it's remarkable because we meet a couple times a month uh, and have breakfast, and it's been transformative because we talk about anything uh, in terms of just providing an anchor and a place to be and talk and and do things. And I also run an online book club with surgeons. Now, admittedly, they're all surgeons, but still... To have a group like that, I mean, my mood and their moods and everybody's sense of well-being just shifts yeah. dramatically after the meetings, you know, yeah. and it's, yeah. a, it's a testimony to the value because they keep showing up despite being incredibly busy, you know, Yeah. and so yeah. There, there's something there. People are thirsting for it. And I find yeah. like, so that's one, you know, that reach back and slingshot forward. Uh, another one, this book called The Good Life that was written uh, about, they studied, you know, Harvard graduate, Harvard students, and then inner city Boston school kids, right? For 80 Wald years. Waldinger's work and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. so, I mean, the basic notion they found is uh, that that the relationships mattered more than the cholesterol and all these other things to, to physical yeah. health. Yeah. And, um, you know, what, what they had put out as a challenge was, you know, just take a given week and set up seven, eight minute phone calls with people. So people you just want to reconnect with grad school, high school, people in prior organizations, whatever it may be, just use LinkedIn, whatever, right? To kind of find seven. And it is hysterical. So my co-author and I did this. We did a lot of different things. We were kind of live this life, you know, as we're as we're talking about it. And it is, it's a riot. You know, you reach out to somebody like that and you're like, you yeah, sure want eight yeah. minutes? That's an awful lot. Can I just give you seven? <laughs> you know, and you're kind of laughing <laughs> But yeah, nobody yeah, yeah. gets an eight minute phone call three months out, right? To you know, right, when right. you catch up. And and then you get in the discussion, you keep it to eight minutes. And inevitably, you know, it leads in my seven, um, six of them led to other things, you know, and, and lunches and other things that have kind of rebrought these people into my lives. My co-author decided to put it up on Facebook and she got 43 requests. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Phone. Yeah. And so to me, yeah. it was just a, a marker that people are dying for this. They're and dying for this kind of connection into yeah. it, right? Like you're doing. Um, yeah. That's all people are looking for, right? It's just a little yeah. structure, right? Into it yeah. to, to connect. Yeah. Um, okay. So now let's move on to the micro stresses because you've whittled those babies down to 14 <laughs> common micro stresses. Hmm. And as you say, that high performers encounter regularly. And uh, you have. I think brilliantly, uh, again, a testimony to the amount of effort that this must have taken, group those 14 micro stresses into three categories. And I'd love it if you could tell us about the three categories and maybe give us an example from each. You've got sure. really great stories in the book. Uh, for instance, the uh, Rita email, Emma and Rachel, whatever examples you want to use, if you could just kind of walk us through those three categories. And so we'll have a, a, a basic understanding of what these yeah. are, are yeah. doing. 
Absolutely. So the first category, and they kind of, you know, move down in progression of invisibility, if you will, and also impact. But the first category were interactions that drain our capacity, our ability to get done what we need to get done. There were five of those kinds of interactions, um, ranging from misalignment to small performance misses by people that you're relying on. So what we would, for example, find that it wasn't so much the big slackers that were killing us in most places, mm -hmm. they would get beaded out in different ways. The problem is people are on so many different teams today. You know, they may have one primary team, but they're put on five, six, seven collaborative efforts that if you happen to own one of these and people come to your effort, and let's say you have four people on the team, they all come to your effort, 95% done, right? So it's just small 5% misses, right? And each one of them is explainable. Somebody didn't understand, somebody's boss pulled them in a different direction, somebody had a sick child, it's all reasonable. The problem is that it's, it's four times 5% to you, right? So that means 20%. Right. And you're stuck with this decision of, do I kind of work through the night and pull myself out of activities that keep me whole or frustrate my significant other and family for not being there? Uh, or do I under deliver, right? Both of these things, you know, create stress in different ways. God, I mean, just and, to, the, to identifying with that scenario. I mean, it just happens yeah. over and over and over again. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the tendency for everybody in our sample, because they're successful people, you know, what do you think they do? Well, they rose to the challenge, they work through right. the night. And then the problem in it is you've then kind of said, okay, 95% is good enough, maybe 90% next time. And not, not because I think people are nefarious. It, what was just so clear to me as I went through this is most people today are making decisions on which balls to drop, not how to excel. I mean, they're exhausted oh, with the demands oh, that we've kind of created uh, in the oh, contemporary workforce. And so, you know, so that was a, a, another example, you know, of drains to capacity. The one you mentioned about the email or just shifts in expectations from an authority figure, you know, very subtle, quick thing that a, a leader or a stakeholder may be doing to get something off their plate can create a massive cascade of kind of primary stressors, but then it also goes a lot of times into secondary stressors uh, as well because of how we're, how we're connected. So, well, so maybe were, this is a good time for you to explain the ripple effects, you know, of yeah. these things. Yeah. Well, you know, what we, you would see is kind of one email in that instance led to, you know, a whole cascading laterally of, of 10, 15 people that didn't understand driving questions back to this person that shouldn't have owned the responsibility to begin with. Uh, and then that then cascaded into these secondary effects where she, in this story, you know, missed a, a time to spend with her son that she was worried about. And you're kind of then stressed about how am I showing up as a parent? It also created a, a testy exchange with a, a husband, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. in there because, mm -hmm. you know, he didn't have transparency into what she was dealing with, but this was another missed opportunity to, you know, be part of the family. And that's a lot of what we would see because of how hyper-connected we are. There'd always be this initial impact, but then it almost always rolled into a secondary and sometimes even you know tertiary impact. Yeah. Even as subtle as you, you get something like that that happens to you and you go home and you complain to your significant other about, you know, these people are crazy, they're driving me nuts. And usually the significant other has no idea of the context. So they have no idea right. what you've done to create it <laughs> and all right. that. And so all they do is say, yeah, you're right, they're crazy, you should quit or whatever. And yeah. they, they yeah. In, in very, you know, trying to be helpful ways, they, they spike us up again, you know what I mean, with the stress. And so it, it had a, a whole bunch of effects like that. Each yeah. of them yeah. had a different effect. Yeah. Um, very so, pernicious lateral effects of these right, things on, right. on everyone in our orbit, potentially. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. 
Um, so, so five that had to do with drains to capacity. Mm -hmm. There was a second uh, set of, of five that impacted us emotionally, right? It just drained our, our energy in situations and, and ability to kind of show up present and, and thriving. And that would take, you know, some forms that were conventional things you might think of like difficult conversations, right? Where people sometimes would worry about performance feedback, how to deal with a, you know, misaligned colleague, things like that, that a lot of people struggle with, you know, they worry about it before the interaction, they have the interaction, then they process it 20 times after the interaction and talk to others, you know, from, mm -hmm. from one mm -hmm. moment that, that actually mm -hmm. creates a, a great deal of stress and learned a lot about how people do that well, you know, they're much more focused on the data, you know, they, they come into those conversations, not saying, here's what you're doing to the other person, but really saying, okay, here's what's happening, what can I do differently? Starting with themselves and saying, how do we shape the context, right? If it's other things that are driving this problem, what do we do there? And only late in the game do they say, here's what I need from you um, to mm -hmm. make this work. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways to manage each of these micro stresses we learn from the, the more successful people, but the, the drains uh, to, to emotional reserves were particularly negative. They just hit people, you know, in a way that had a had an outsized impact on them. Yeah. So there was yeah. five of those, you know, and, and again, some of them negative, like conflictual conversations, but one of you know, your couple of them are positive, right? Concern about um, employees that you're trying to take care of or children or aging right. parents um, yeah. was was a, another one. And then the last was um, kind of challenge. Last, cate last category. Last category. Yeah. Yeah, 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 thank you. Um, were challenges to identity, right? And what we would see, and this relates a little bit to what I'd mentioned earlier, is people would, you know, reacting to a system that they were in, make all sorts of small decisions progressively that they then woke up one day and said, this is not who I meant to be, right? Or I wanted to be. And so, you know, I hear a lot about that when there's aggressive sales targets for people and they have to oversell or with physicians, it's, you know, the, the way insurance has put mandates on things that mm -hmm. have you spending time, not in a caregiving role, but, you know, reacting to a lot of other things after a heck of an investment in time and yeah. money to, yeah. to get there. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, those were more subtle and they happened kind of more slowly over time, but those were the ones that often led to the bed snapping, you know, that last mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. kind of micro stress uh, piling on. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. So categories are those that drain our capacity, mm -hmm. those that drain us emotionally, and those that challenge our identity. Yeah. Now, you know, sitting here and when I, even just looking at the title, you know, 14 microstresses, that's a lot of right. the to try. Right. And you just think about the overwhelming nature of these things coming at us continuously. But yeah. you've really uh, done a great job of figuring out a process for how to deal with those. And I'd love it if you could tell us about the 10 percenters and, and then yeah. the table that you've constructed. And it's so useful. Uh, it's just so um, uh, valuable and, and uh, implementable, the table, yep. to yep. begin to yep. contend with these things in a meaningful way. Right. So, right. But, yeah. yeah. So the, the tables, chapter five, is, you know, what we um, are doing there uh, to kind of visually portray this as much as it's a table that has the 14 microstresses down the first column. And then across the top are the principal sources of these microstresses. So it'd be, a, you know, a boss, uh, colleagues, uh, stakeholders, loved ones, you know, all the people that are typically in our lives that create this. Uh, I don't have a column for ourselves. You know, a lot of times people are asking me, where am I in this? And, yeah, you know, I could use a column for myself. 
Right, right. I'm, I'm focused. That's very legitimate, but I'm focused more on the relationships, you know, in here. But what we ask people to do is to go through that three times. Right? And so the first pass, you're making through that, this grid now, you've got the micro stresses mm-hmm. and then the sources of them, is to say, where are two, three, or four of these that are systemic enough in your life that you should be doing something about them, right? It's not these one-off interactions. It's actually persistent behavior yeah. that yeah. there's things you can do. You need to change the behavior. You need to increase the distance between those you know, interactions, put them in groups, whatever. There's a tons of strategies for each of these. Which you do um, you know, elaborate on very beautifully yeah. in the book. I mean, you mm-hmm. this is a book full of strategies for these various micro stresses. I just want to emphasize mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and so people will go through in the first pass. And what always happens, because I do this a ton of times in leadership work or other things, is you know, half the time before I can even turn around in a room, people have put in 10 X's <laughs> in right, these cells, right. you know what I mean? Because of what you're saying, like they see it everywhere. And what you're I'm always going back and doing is saying, no, 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 if it's everything, it's nothing. I really want you to hone in on three, four, maybe five that are systemic, prevalent things you can do something about to get your your hands around this a little bit. And it's really important. You know, we know through all of social psychology that the negative interactions in our lives have three to five times the impact of the positives. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if your approach to managing stress today is simply meditation, mindfulness, yoga, those are all great things without a doubt. But all they're really doing is allowing you to persist in the system you've let build around you. Right. If you're not also saying, how do I adapt some of these touch points that I've let build into my life? Right. Versus, you know, saying I'm I'm in a reactive posture, uh, you're you're leaving, you know, some of the highest leverage stuff on the table. And so the first pass is. Yes. Where, uh, what are three to five that you could take action on, right, and address. Then the second pass is where, you know, two, three, four that you're unnecessarily causing for others and put an O in those cells. And um, again, this always shocks people. They're like, ooh, I hadn't thought about that, you know, focused more on, you know, what, what's happening to me. But inevitably, what we find when we're polling large groups, and I do actual polls, I'll say, what are you experiencing? And then what are you causing? The profiles are almost identical. Like the stresses that people experience, they tend to pass on, right? And and systemically in places, you'd like to stop that. But the bigger reason is, you know, uh, through all the stories, I could so clearly see that the stress we unnecessarily create in a situation inevitably boomerangs back on us in one form or another. And so you may push a a nurse too hard, right? Or or somebody in in the operating room too hard. And it shows up in the way of a little bit less proactive effort, maybe even a little bit of negativity, right? That you can't see. It's it's there, it's there for sure. Yeah. yeah. And we've done this work with hospital systems and mapped, particularly cardiologists. Hopefully I'm not offending anybody, but they can <laughs> react in ways in those rooms that creates a lot of negativity that comes back uh, in, in unproductive ways. So, you know, part of it is what am I unnecessarily creating because it does boomerang back, whether that's professional or personal, right? You get down into the weeds with your children on something that you just you're not going to let go of, even though in the scope of life, it doesn't matter <laughs> that right, much. Right. Um, yeah. And that comes back in the form of a distant relationship, maybe belligerence, whatever, uh, whatever it may be. So, um, so that that's the second pass. And then the third pass for me, which I actually think is the most important is, you know, where are you um, making a, a, a too much out of a small thing? 
right? You've just kind of gotten down in the weeds on things. You're irritated with a colleague, whatever it may be. But in the scope of life, it, it doesn't really matter, right? If you Time just to let these things go. Right. Time to right. let them go. And, yeah. and it sounds like it's, oh, just, you know, let water roll off your back or whatever. And people roll their eyes. But it is probably the most critical thing I could see. Like there's so many of these micro stresses hitting us today. And what I could see in this work is the people that had, again, those two or three groups outside of their profession that they were an authentic part of, it just created an entirely different perspective of what was really critical and not the people that let everything devolve to just their profession and direct family. Everything feels like a big deal to them. Yeah. Right? And yeah. everything feels yeah. like a bad. Uh, and they don't walk away right from things that really don't matter in the scheme of life. And right. so that's what I'm really honing in on there is to say, where are you letting that happen? And how can you back away? How can you get more dimensionality built in that just lets you kind of live above the surface of this stuff? A right, bit right. Yeah. Just a little vignette from my own personal life. My wife is a high risk. Uh, she's retired now, but she's a high risk uh, obstetrician. So she took care of complicated pregnancies and, you know, challenging the world. Yeah. Uh, but when she came home from work, uh, it was very important for her to be able to ventilate about what went on during the day. And she loved to talk about, I don't know about love, but she talked about the interactions, positive or negative. And I, I was right exactly where, you're, where you mentioned, and that is I struggled with, because I knew that, you know, if it was a negative interaction, you know, I'm only seeing one perspective there. And if I if I went along with it too much, then she could go down the rabbit hole and the emotions could get more negative. Mm -hmm. And so we had to, I actually, because it would really affect me and then therefore it would come back yeah. to her, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. I had to, we established a little thing and that was, you know, there's an old Jonathan Winters uh, comedian and he came out on Johnny Carson for nobody's going to know this, but he came out and sat down and he just put his hand down on the table and said, pencils down, you know? <laughs> so it was a comedic thing, but we have that. I say pencils down and then she mm -hmm. knows, okay, I've had my chance to ventilate. Uh, I'm done now. And it was really dramatic in terms of how it cleaned that concern and anxiety I had about mm. what, what's going to be coming home tonight, you know, in terms yeah. of what her experience yeah. was. Yeah, and so it's I, huge. I, yeah. It's huge. Yeah, you know, what, what I found, and we asked people as we went through these interviews, I would say, tell me about a, um, a setback in your life, right? Or, you know, uh, something that was substantive. So it wasn't day-to-day -day setbacks. It was something that they could remember and we could talk about. And, um, and then I honed in on not what did you do to get through, because that's how we're taught to think about resilience today, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is it's, it's almost like we own it, <laughs> which is yeah. no element of it, it's true. Yeah. But if you ask, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people how they got through difficult stretches, and I would hear anything from I didn't get the promotion to, you know, my spouse died of pancreatic cancer and I had three young children, like truly traumatic mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. and, and then you focus not on what they did, but on how they relied on others right? Mm -hmm. To get through, you hear eight really specific things, right? So people definitely want empathy, you know, but, but usually you try to do empathy with what I call a path forward, <laughs> you know, and yes. people that have been in that situation that can offer advice and here's some steps to take. Um, people More of a compassionate stance rather than empathetic stance. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, some people like perspective in the situation that like, you know, in the scope of things, this is worth fighting for. For me, it's laughter. You know, I, I just mm -hmm. thrive mm -hmm. on just the subtle, small things that show us the absurdity of the situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And, um, and so I, you know, what, I'm, <clears throat> what we're seeing in that is the people that have the relationships and know how to use them well, they do much better, but it's not always what they think they need. You know, the number of times right. I would hear people say they, they went home, they talked to their spouse and what they wanted was empathy and they got perspective <laughs> they yeah, yeah, empathy yeah. from their girlfriends over a bottle right. of wine or something yeah, like that yeah. um, is, is, you know, really kind of fascinating in it all. <laughs> But that's the that's the key to what you're talking about, that dimensionality, because we can't expect our spouse to give us everything we need or that's, you know. Yeah. And it's a really great point. Like what the global stats are showing is that the quality of the relationships in our lives have fallen right over 20 Mm -hmm. years, not just COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, And what that's done for many, many, many people is it's put too much negative pressure on either the parental relationships or the spousal relationship. And it's that's because it's become more insular. Yeah. Right. Become more insular. Yeah. Those outlets Mm -hmm. there. And, uh, and yeah. And if you don't have devices, like you're saying, it can, it can have negative, you know, ripples in in different ways. So I love that. I love that. pencils down. (laughs) I'll steal that for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Good. The one thing, just a side note here, I, you know, I, and I agree with you completely that, you know, meditation, yoga, all that stuff, it's not going to be a cure-all, but in terms of letting things go, I mean, I found uh, once I started meditating and really kind of, it gave me the skills to really drop things much more quickly. I would, mm-hmm. I would recognize when I'm getting a story loop going about how I was treated or whatever the little thing is. And it's a skill that I was able to develop over time. But I mean, I've really become so much better at just getting past those upsets that are really overall inconsequential in right. the grand scheme right. of things. So right. I just wanted it's, to it's huge. throw and in a pitch this, for that. Yeah, this is exercise, you know, and the you same know, thing, the yeah. way that that has impact yeah. too. Um, yeah, so I completely agree for sure. What about the 10 percenters? And how did they uh, yeah. inform you here? Yeah. So what was intriguing to me is, you you know, 90% of the interviews would go down this kind of negative path, you know, of the cracks coming in and some, it became very extreme, you know, at the end, what was fascinating is you would start to expect that, you know, in your interviews Mm -hmm. and then, and then, so it would really stand out when people didn't do that. Right. And, And these were again, all highly successful top organizations and, and about 10% of them, they were just navigating life in their profession <clears throat> in different ways. And, and that kind of kept them on this high waterline and not kind of descending um, beneath it. And, you know, one of the, the key aspects to them is, as we've discussed already, right, it's kind of maintaining that dimensionality um, in life, you know, in, in very specific ways. Um, and another to me was that they, they might do big things like sail the ocean or, you know, write a concerto or things like that, but it wasn't the big things that was creating the happiness. What was generally creating the happiness is that they tended to live small moments more authentically with others. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and they were more intentional about that. And so one of my favorite stories out of that was um, a very successful um, uh, life um, software executive, right? She, she'd come to, I think it was Stanford, if I remember, she's the chief strategy officer and runs the venture fund for one of the most successful software companies in the world. Everybody would know the name if I mentioned it. And I got into the interview and she'd been a runner, you know, in college. And then she came out, she kept running as a key part of her life uh, in this highly demanding context. And she's mid forties, I think when I was speaking with her and, and she said, Rob, I made the mistake of letting society define what running was good for. For me, right? And I was like, oh, 
that sounds interesting. <laughs> we kind of leaned into that. And what she said is, you know, I got into this loop for the first 20 years of my post-college life where I would run these races. And if I didn't get a personal best time every year, it was a bad year for running, right? And intuitively, you know, that's unreasonable right? as we yeah. age and as all the responsibilities for somebody like that, you know, skyrocket. But she was letting that goal drive her time. You know, and so she was getting up earlier in the morning to do yoga, to stretch, to do weights, all these things that were pulling her away from family and friends in different ways, because that had become the measurable goal, right? The thing to hit in addition to all the professional things. And she said she woke up one day and realized that what she wanted to be doing was running with her daughter, her daughter's best friend and a parent in the neighborhood. And so they started running and it evolved into this group of parents and children, right? In that neighborhood that were using that time to teach the kids how to be physically healthy and spend time together. And she said, I've never, you know, I've never been happier, right? With, with what running is about for me. Um, and, and so, you know, from a principal standpoint, what she's doing is saying, how do I take the activity that I'm already doing and pivot it in a way that pulls me into relationships versus pulling me out of them. Uh -huh. And for her, that meant, you know, pivoting away from looking for personal best times to, you know, interactions with community uh, around her and her, uh, her child, you know, in this case. And we have a grid in the book that kind of talks about what people described as, as you know, relationships that created a sense of purpose and meaning uh, in their lives. And I find when you start looking at it that way, you know, we're not saying how do we go write a concerto. Uh, we're not pushing, you know, when we're going to have impact in the world over the horizon to six months out, 12 months out. But we actually say, how do we pivot what we're already doing today at work or outside of work? Right? There's a lot of ways you can do it that pulls us a little bit more into authentic connection with others. It's actually very doable. You know, you're, you're not adding on a big time commitment. You're just saying, how do I just slightly alter what I'm doing in a way that could uh, could have greater impact for me? Um, and so that was the second big yeah. principle for those people. So they just tended to be more intentional and persistent in living those small moments more richly uh, with with other people. Mm -hmm. Is that is that other principles for the 10 percenters that you want to elaborate on? Those two were the biggest. Those two were um, the big sure. ones. Yeah. And then the yeah. idea of how they got resilience too were right. the three right. kind of kind of big, big notions for them. <laughs> yeah. I know that uh, in Annie Duke's book, Quit, I mean, she highlighted the fact that goals can uh, put on blinders uh, right. to right. things. So you, you have to hold them a little lightly. And, and I think it's beautiful the way you articulated the ability to pivot and engage with others in the pursuit of what you're doing yeah it's yeah, yeah. it's interesting there's a, a the, my co-author was um co-author in another book that clay christensen wrote called how will you measure your life and his okay. basic idea there was that the things we can measure and count too often dictate you know longer term paths that that crush us eventually yeah. you know we wake yeah. up one day and and i think it's really the case with connections in our lives like we don't have a way of seeing it we have a way of seeing personal best times or what's in our right. bank account or all right. these other things but it's it's very difficult for us to kind of see the impact um, and it's crazy to me when i mentioned even the mortality rates earlier you know, the lack of quality of connections that people fall into this category of being clinically lonely, you know, which about a third of the U.S. population is, uh -huh. the mortality uh -huh. rate is the same as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And to me, it's a really fascinating question of why don't people pay more attention to that? You know, we'll know. chase blood pressure medicine 
cholesterol medications, yeah. all yeah. this stuff, because we can measure it, right, and see it. But somehow we don't have the same uh, awareness of something that's having that, that equivalent impact on our on our physical health, let alone mental, you know, well-being. Well, it seems, I, I mean, especially performers and doers, I mean, I'm speaking for myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to look for solutions, you know, things that are tangible. Okay, you do this, you, and this happens. And, you know, connections and relationships, they're not as immediate, I mean, as, as taking a pill or doing or some other thing like running, you know, or pursuing right. a goal. Right. Right. You know, it's it's kind of like meditation. It's one of those things you engage in it over time. And, you know, the the changes happen in a very right. real way, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. But you can't see it. A lot of times it's, yeah. a, it's a leap of faith. <laughs> yeah, it really <laughs> is to get going anyway. at it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been great. And I, I want to just highlight, you know, the the last three chapters where you break down uh, in, in a beautiful way how to navigate. Uh, our lives, and I, I'll quote you here, to enjoy overall well-being, you must develop strategies, not only to combat stress, but to also help you live the life you want, to live with resilience, physical health, and purpose. And the last three chapters focus on those three things, you know, and what is so great about your book is this, these last three chapters, they kind of bring it all together it's not just about micro stresses and the details and all that, but you know, you pull it together in a way that really provides good anchors for those three areas. And I just wanted to say that and and just catch your reaction to any of that. Anything yeah. you want to add to that? No, I appreciate it very much. Obviously, that was our goal in this, and the way we went about the work was to uncover what are the people doing that are pulling this off. When when everybody mm -hmm. feels like I'm burned out, I have no control, I can't do this. There's some that are. And trying to figure out, okay, how are they doing this and, and make it as actionable as possible. So when we say live your life with purpose, we're not saying go out and sail the ocean, right? What we're doing is right. saying take small moments, find ways to lean into these kinds of connections, whichever ones matter to you. And it is, you know, things that people can take action on. They may not, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but they can legitimately take action on. And the stories that we're starting to collect now, you know, of successful impact are really heartening for me anyway with this with this work well i get in summary or in conclusion i just want to say that i suspect you know what you've written here is really a playbook for how to navigate the modern world and and our relationships and and to come out on the other side of that it'll be it seems it, it seems sort of easy just to keep doing what you've always done mm -hmm. but i would encourage anybody that's listening to this to take time to go to that table pick you know do the work that you outline you know go through it three times and pick one or two and take action on it the results i'm convinced will be incredibly valuable and gratifying yeah well thank you so much i appreciate yeah. it <laughs> yeah thank you so much for your work and what you brought to our our human existence really really fantastic so most most appreciated yeah <laughs> thank you This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.